When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There are times when you can't really believe what you're seeing is real. A sensory overload of this enclosed place was too much. Someone playfully screamed, oh no, Joe. And Joe did it again and sang, oh no, Joe, not again, Joe. The passenger told me I could just slide the gate open. As I approached the fence, I saw some signs that made me stop cold. Listener discretion advised. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. From Disturbed Media, I'm your host, Chad, and this is Disturbed. Big thanks to the fun and challenging Best Fiends for their support. Best Fiends is the binge-worthy mobile puzzle game. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Welcome back in everyone, and thanks for joining me. No business to cover today, so we're getting right to it. We open the show with our title story, coming to us from Reddit user HamFX and we learn all about the man they call Sex Dungeon Dan. Performing this experience is Matt Bradford. This story takes place on the same piece of land referenced in another of my Let's Not Meet stories, horrifying storage unit auction experience, although this one took place almost 20 years prior. You see, back then, this parcel of land was owned by my dad and a business partner. It was essentially vacant, although we had taken on a few tenants who needed space to restore old sailboats or store industrial machinery. Being in a somewhat remote area, we were not immune to trespassers, and tenants would tell us about stolen tools or machinery parts often. This is where we met Dan. Dan came to my father much in the same way many others did. He had a boat restoration business and needed a place to work. He also asked if it would be okay if he slept on the property a few nights a week, under the guise of it saving him time commuting if he worked late on a project. Now, this was mutually beneficial, as Dan seemed like a decent guy, and it would be nice to have a presence there overnight. We let him have a reduced rent rate as compensation for him generally keeping an eye on the place. A few months later, Dan had built himself a little compound. 
a series of three sea containers in a horseshoe configuration with the little trailer in the middle. Over the same period of time, we noticed that Dan didn't seem to work. There were never boats there, and Dan's a few nights a week became every night. Soon after, the excuse for why he didn't have rent started coming in. So effectively, we had invited a squatter into our property. Dan became the same people we wanted him to keep out. Trying to look on the bright side, my dad and his partner were still okay with this as it was beneficial to have someone there at all hours. I mean, the theft had gone down substantially, and Dan's rent, even when paid in full, was not tipping any financial needles for us. So we let it be for the time. About a year later, Dan's mental health was starting to show its cracks. He went from polite to aggressive and bitter. I mean, he wasn't violent, and he was always very courteous to me personally. I was 23 at the time. But when he was asked about money and back rent, he would get defensive and start blaming my dad and his partner for why he couldn't pay. And my dad wasn't afraid of anybody, but Dan made him nervous. My dad's partner had a friend who recently dealt with a similar renter-turned-squatter situation, and when he called the police for assistance, he was thanked by the squatter with a bullet in his stomach. You know, a few thousand dollars back rent or an eviction was not worth a gunshot to my dad, and we all felt that Dan was capable of snapping that way. So we just kept Dan busy doing cleanup and random tasks, which he always did, and remarkably well. One day, my dad asked me to run up to the site for him as he was out of town. A tenant had called because it looked like someone had tried to cut through a piece of our fence and he wanted to get eyes on it. I pulled onto the property where I was greeted by Dan. Hey, buddy, he yelled and waved. And Dan was always very respectful to me, a courtesy of which he had stopped showing my dad and his partner some time ago. Hey, Dan, I yelled back as I parked and got out of my car. Come check this out, Dan replied and wait for me to step inside his little compound area. I was dying to see what was going on in there, honestly. I knew Dan was off, but I never felt intimidated or in danger. Just another weird guy. I walked over and Dan brought me next to one of the sea containers. Check this out. The sea container had a roll-up door on the side instead of the typical latch and swing doors on the end. He rolls up the door to... a wall? I look closer and he has welded a metal wall two feet into the sea container. Uh, what am I looking at, Dan? A skirt down the pathway to the left, he says and points. I look down the narrow pathway and see a small opening at the end, maybe four feet high and three feet wide. Hey, check it out. I really should not have gone in, but again, curiosity and that feeling of invincibility you have as a 23-year-old overshadowed my better judgment. I squeezed down the hallway and threw the door into the main hold of the sea container. The interior was painted deep red. Shade carpet had been poorly glued to the ground, and on every wall and surface, broken pieces of mirror had been glued, and in the back, an old-style prison door had been welded in place, and behind it, a small round bed with shiny satin sheets. There are times when you can't really believe what you're seeing is real. A sensory overload of this enclosed place was too much. I don't know how long I stood there, but I was snapped back to reality when Dan, who was standing right behind me, says, I love to party in here. I hadn't even realized he followed me in. One good piece of advice my dad gave me when dealing with tricky situations was always play along as long as you are safe, until a moment comes that you can get away fast and safely. I ran through this scenario. I had done MMA and kickboxing in college. I'm not a small guy, but neither was Dan. 
Do I punch him and run and risk God knows what? Are there weapons hidden in here? I decided to go for the path of least resistance. Wow, Dan, this place is sick. I'll bet with some weed and some music you could just spend hours back here. Ah, man, you should come back and we can hang in here together. It'd be wild. His face softened, like he'd just found a friend who got it. Uh, look, Dan, I, I want to hang bad, but I came here to meet my dad and he should be pulling up right now, so I've got to go meet him. Dan shrugged and I walked past him, squeezing through pathways until I was back outside. I calmly walked my car, got in, and left. I relayed this story to my dad and his partner who thought it was odd, but due to the fear of potential violence from Dan, both my dad and his partner weren't certain that Dan didn't know our home addresses. We didn't call the authorities. We did, however, keep a very close eye on Dan, and actually brought in another tenant to stay the night and keep an eye on both Dan and the property. Eventually, Dan decided to move on. One day, we showed up and his containers were being loaded onto a shipper, but he was nowhere to be found. He had moved on, leaving behind only sea container footprints and three dumpsters worth of garbage. I told the police the story soon after, along with his name. They said they would keep their ears out, but not knowing where he went, or if Dan was even his real name, there wasn't much more they could do. In the time since, we have never had a visit or heard from Dan. The only people I told this story to were my paintball friends at work, who would practice with me on the property and knew Dan since he was always there, and coined the nickname Sex Dungeon Dan. If you'd like to hear these episodes without the ads, get additional bonus episodes, and your own shout-out, visit disturbedpodcast.com support to learn more. Next up, we hear from Reddit user Lady Delirium, and we learn why not to trust strangers. Performing this experience is Rhiannon Mauschel. This happened when my sister and I were around six and eight. We are now 43 and 45 respectively, and it is something that still haunts us occasionally. We had an amazing municipal swimming pool in our neighborhood. South African summers in Johannesburg are hot and long. The swimming pool was the ultimate destination. Joe was that adult that was always at the pool. He would swim lengths, practice diving, and tickle our feet under the water. Just saying this makes me feel nauseous. To this day, I still have issues with my feet being wet. Specifically, I am unable to leave cream on my feet. The sliminess makes me feel claustrophobic. I only realized the connection last year. Whenever we would sit on the edge of the pool with our feet hanging in, he would swim past all of us and tickle our feet in a row. I can't remember all the details, but someone playfully screamed, Oh no, Joe! And Joe did it again and sang, Oh no, Joe, not again, Joe! <laughs> we all laughed as kids do. Then he tickled our feet again and made us sing his new song, Oh no, Joe, not again, Joe. It became a game. 
He would grab us under the water and we would sing. It went from feet tickling to chasing us and grabbing our waists under the water. Oh no, Joe, not again, Joe. That song never goes away. One day at the pool, Joe tells us he has this amazing farm just out of town. He would like to take us to see his animals, his corn, and his own swimming pool. It sounded like heaven to all of us. He was talking to several children, boys and girls. He told us to be at the swimming pool on Saturday, but not to tell our parents, and that we would go in his car. As soon as we get home, we tell our dad everything. We are so excited. This farm sounds amazing. Our dad says, absolutely not. Who is Joe anyway? We tell him that Joe is our friend at the pool and plays with our feet and chases us around the pool. My dad says that actually maybe we can go, but he wants to meet Joe first. Yay. (laughs) The next day we go to the pool and we tell Joe we can go with him, but our dad wants to meet him first. Joe is upset that we told our dad, but we tell him not to worry. Our dad is cool. So Joe walks home with us. We only lived about five blocks from the pool and comes to meet our dad. Joe is about 5'6". My dad is 6'7", the personification of a gentle giant. My dad is super polite to Joe. He asks him loads of questions about the farm. Where is it exactly? How many kids are going? And has he spoken to the other parents? Joe was cool as a cucumber. He answered the questions smoothly and confidently. My dad ended by saying, Joe, I look forward to seeing you on Saturday at your farm. I think we will have a great time. I'll bring my girls though, and we will meet you there. The next part is a bit of a blur for me. I'm not sure how we ended up driving in convoy with about three other dads and their kids from the pool, but it was so exciting. My dad had the map book, leading the convoy to the best farm in the world. We drove about an hour out of town and we arrive at this derelict farmhouse. No animals, no corn, no swimming pool. Just this rundown, isolated, scary looking farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. I remember being really confused. My dad must have read the map book wrong. All the dads huddled together. We have no idea what they are saying, but they are really angry. And we are also angry. We are obviously lost and it's the dad's fault. Everyone gets in their cars and I start screaming at my dad about how he deliberately got us lost because he doesn't like Joe and he didn't want us to have fun. My dad is silent and pensive. After my tantrum, he says to my sister and I in a very calm, deep voice, Joe is a bad man. He was going to hurt all of you. He is the bad man your mom is always warning you about. My mother was obsessed with true crime. There is no farm. I am so happy you girls told me what was going on before something bad happened to you. His strong voice broke on those last words. The gravity of his tone and the break in his voice made my sister and I realize immediately that he was right and we were in danger. We cried and apologized. He made us promise to tell him if we saw Joe again. Joe stayed away from the pool for about a month. As soon as we saw him come through the gate, we quickly got dressed and ran home. When my dad came home from golf, we told him Joe was at the pool again. The next day, we went to the pool with our dad. We were swimming and my dad was sitting on one of those benches to the side. In walks Joe. He comes to the edge of the pool and is calling us. 
We refuse to go to the edge. He is getting frustrated. My dad gets up and walks to Joe. Hey, buddy, can I chat to you outside quickly? Joe physically shrunk. My dad had his hand on Joe's shoulder and was guiding him out of the pool. I can only imagine what my dad did or said to Joe. My dad is a gentleman, but don't mess with his girls. Joe was never seen again at our swimming pool. Disturbed is brought to you by Best Fiends, and I love this game. You know, whenever I'm sitting around and I have a few extra minutes, I find myself pulling out my phone and playing a few levels. And I found it's a great way to unwind and keep my brain active and thinking. And it's not just the same boring strategy. It keeps you thinking and really keeps you on your toes. And I gotta tell you, I've found it's way more fun than those matching puzzle games. You know, the ones where you crush candy over and over and over. In fact, sometimes I just completely lose myself in the game because I'm so focused in on it. And I have to remind myself to get back to working on an episode or recording. But really, it's never a problem to find yourself in a new level or a new round because Best Fiends has literally thousands of puzzles to solve. You know, I've been playing it for a few months now and I honestly find it as one of my favorite things to do when I know I'm gonna have a few minutes to kill. And I love how they're always putting out new updates so it leaves you in a spot where you're never getting bored with seeing the same old things and it never gets old. And the gameplay itself is actually really fun and engaging. It's one of those games where across all levels you get consistent quality and it's just really, really fun. So my advice to you, give Best Fiends a try. Just don't blame me if you can't put it down. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R best fiends and we thank best fiends for their support of disturbed ever heard of stoicism chances are if you have you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s lone wolves no emotions antisocial behavior cold indifference all that is stoicism with a lowercase s stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis to include your family friends community and planet and the development of a good moral character my name is tanner campbell and i'm the host of practical stoicism a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. 
Now back to the show. Up next, we hear from Reddit user Jimmy Pritchett. And as an Uber driver in LA, he has some weird tales to tell. Performing this experience is Tom Aglio. When I was in college, I found myself Ubering to make money. This was in Southern California, and L.A. at the time was a constant flow of work. Occasionally, you'd pick people up in a nice area, and they'd tell you that they were sleeping with someone in a relationship, or that they themselves were cheating. This was depressingly common. I think that saying what they were doing to someone gave them a weird kind of relief. Once, I drove someone from Hollywood to Hemet, California. He was very charming and funny. When I dropped him off, it was at a big blue building that they buzzed us into. He left me a $200 cash tip. I later found out that this is what is known as gold base for the Church of Scientology. If you don't know what that is, it's a completely normal, not weird at all in any way location owned by the Church of Scientology. Feel free to Google it. A few months into my taxi career, insurance companies started using rideshare service, and some people who were more down on their luck would use it. Sometimes this was people just trying to get their kids to school, but sometimes it was much sadder. I can't tell you how many times I showed up to a doctor's office to see someone with accessibility limitations face drop at seeing my tiny car instead of a van like they needed. The people with substance problems were interactions that would stay with you. Once I picked up a man going to a dental appointment, and I drove him for about a half hour. He told me about how he used to run drugs in the 90s, until they caught him with a few pounds of coke. He told me about when he was moved from Nevada to Florida for trial how he traveled handcuffed in a van, how the cops would stop only once a day at McDonald's and for their $1 menu item of the day. He asked me to stop at a liquor store. He chugged a tiny bottle of booze, shoved mint into his mouth, then sipped on a soda. He smelled like pure alcohol when I dropped him off at the dentist. Near my house, there was a methadone clinic. I would get up before dawn to be able to take those rides. Early bird gets the worm, right? Almost always, they were sweet and thankful. Sometimes they were a little out of it, but I never felt in danger or anything like that. Just good people going through tough times. These rides were the most consistently depressing. People who were going to court clearly drunk or high. Older women who had been requesting a ride and had been waiting in the parking lot of their dialysis place into the night. They'd tell their stories sometimes. A person who was going to court for a child custody case. People struggling with mental illness. Some mornings were exhausting. Being up that early, you'd hit another crowd that I had never anticipated. Funeral goers. The saddest funeral ride was when a man and a woman got into my back seat. Rather than speaking to me, the man handed me a neon printout of a map of a cemetery with instructions on what plot to go to. With, hello, I'm attending my father's funeral, my wife and I are deaf, please follow these directions, written on the back of it. The whole ride I could hear them signing to one another and trying not to cry. There were also the retired gamblers. They'd leave their houses at 7 in the morning, take a $70 Uber out to the desert, and spend the whole day gambling at the reservation casinos. The desert is where I saw the weirdest things. The desert was the only place I had ever felt scared driving. It was in Temecula, the wine country of SoCal. Lots of wooded roads and desert. I picked up a lady just off the freeway at what I initially assumed was the edge of a golf resort, but it was an unpaved access road. It was late, and that area was especially dark. I was getting ready to call the passenger when I saw them coming down the unpaved access road. It was a tall blonde woman in a very nice pantsuit, 
She was absurdly put together considering she had walked God knows how long in heels down a dirt rock road. She got into the car and was very pleasant. She said she lived in a gated community that was hard to get Ubers to, and it was easier to send me to the access road. I thought it was weird, but I didn't want to be creepy asking about where she lived. She was friendly, chatty even. She was going to a dinner party, and as she spoke to me, I could feel her looking at me in the rearview mirror the entire ride. We drove a half hour away from the freeway, to one of those rural, chic neighborhoods that you would hear celebrities had huge parties at. Eventually, we reached the address, which was a paved road lined with trees. She told me to keep driving, and I didn't think much of it because, again, we were in a mansion-style neighborhood. We hit a white ranch-style fence after a minute or so going down the road. That was when I started to feel a bit uneasy. There were around a dozen no-trespassing signs and one of those classic forget-the-dog-beware-of-owner signs with a guy pointing a pistol at you. I thought it was more than a little blunt to have that many signs, but hey, not my property. We drove for about a minute when we came to another fence. It was at the top of a hill and it overlooked a barn with some lights in the distance. I know this sounds weird, but it was unpleasant. I couldn't put my finger on it, it was just a barn with what looked like a barbecue going on, but being out in the woods without any light had me freaked out. The passenger told me I could just slide the gate open. As I approached the fence, I saw some signs that made me stop cold. Off to the side of the gate, not quite in the dark, but on the fringes of my headlights, there were metal signs with bullet holes through them, swastikas, and Confederate flags brightly displayed. SoCal has a lot of white supremacist pockets. I had dropped off dozens of passengers in cities like Norco and driven down streets with people drinking in the garage and a Nazi flag proudly hung behind them. It wasn't my favorite, but I wasn't spending any time in those neighborhoods more than I needed to. This was different, though. It was after 11 p.m. at night, and I had no idea where I was. I opened the gate, and down the road I saw what I assume were cell phone flashlights lighting up and coming up the incline. This made me very uncomfortable. I went back and told the woman that I didn't think my car could make it back up the hill if I went down it. What are you talking about? Just take me. It's right there. She was getting more heated, and I could see the lights slowly making their way up the hill. She kept telling me I needed to cancel the ride and that she wouldn't pay to not be taken the entire way. I told her the pin I was supposed to take her to was a mile back up the road, but I was so nervous I relented and canceled on my end. She slammed the door as she got out. I took off before I could see the cell phone light people get closer. The road back was much rougher at the speed I was going at. I felt a bump that felt like I hit a body, but I kept going. My car was driving like shit, but I kept driving till I was past the fence, out of the rich neighborhood until I stopped at a gas station. My right rear tire was fucked up, and I needed to change it. There were a few nails that looked like they had been attached to a piece of wood on my tire. I was freaked out so hard, and sometimes I wish I had called the cops and reported it. But of course, all that happened was I got a flat on a back road, and I didn't want to spend the rest of my night waiting on a cop car. I know it's far more likely that I freaked myself out than a bunch of Nazis planning to mess with a random Uber driver, but when I pick up a well-dressed businesswoman from a remote location and drop her off at a separate remote location, it gives me the chills that I have trouble explaining to this day. And finally, we hear from Reddit user Gemma Darling. And sometimes, a stalker will do just about anything to get closer to his victim. Performing this experience is Nicole Doolin.
This happened years ago, but still affects me to this day. I apologize for the length ahead in advance, but I feel like I have to tell the whole story. The summer after I graduated high school, I was still living at home. I was up late one night and was packing for a camping trip with my friends. It was unbelievably hot, and I had the window open as I sat in folded clothes. It was around two in the morning, and the next thing I knew, there was a hand coming through the gap in the screen of my window. I screamed and the hand flew back out. I was stunned, but there was a part of me that wondered if it was my younger brother pranking me. I got up and looked out the window and just saw the figure of a man staring back at me. I ran into my brother's room and he was there playing video games. We called the police, who came and searched the area. They found nothing, warned me and my parents to lock the windows and doors and left. We were all still shaken up and my mom had a feeling that he would come back. It turns out her mother's intuition was right. She went outside and waited on our back porch. After 20 minutes or so, she saw a man, dressed in black, slink into our backyard along the tree line. There wasn't a fence on that side, unfortunately. He hid behind a tree for a few seconds and ran to another tree and hid there, slowly working his way towards my window. My mother yelled something to him and he took off running. The police came back out again and found no trace of him. I never opened that window again, not even the curtains. My parents installed some motion-detecting lights, and that seemed to be the end of that. About six months later, my friend and I got an apartment downtown together. We were really excited, as this was our first place on our own. The apartment wasn't exactly the best quality, but it was so fun to be living in the city. The downside was that it was street parking only. After a few weeks, my car was broken into. Nothing was taken, but a single rose sat on the passenger seat. It was creepy, but I vowed to be vigilant and safe. I always tried to park close to the entrance, near the lights. But often, it was difficult to get those spots. And I would often have to park farther away, on darker streets. Things quickly began escalating at this point. My car was broken into at least once a week... Most of the time, a flower was left, which I always threw on the ground. But once, a pair of men's underwear was left. And even more creepily, once a bag of Tootsie Rolls, as they were my favorite candy. This made me wonder if the person knew me personally, and I started to become suspicious of everyone. There was a laundry in the basement of the apartment, and one day I went down to get a load that finished drying. As I started to fold... I realized all of my undergarments, bras, and panties were gone. Another week I had a male friend over from school and his tires got slashed during the visit. By the time the first letter arrived, I had already started making plans to move elsewhere. The letter described a love for me that had been going on for years. He noted things that proved he had been watching me closely. I was able to arrange for another friend to take over my lease, and I moved in with another friend on the other side of the city. It was a secured building and had an underground parking garage that was only accessible to tenants. I felt much more secure, and the extra money spent was well worth the peace of mind. Things were quiet for a few months, and then my roommate got a boyfriend. Most of us were wary of Ashley's new boyfriend from the beginning. For one, 
They met on MySpace after he reached out to her. Another reason was that new boyfriend, Matt, was extremely good-looking. And while Ashley was a wonderful person, she just wasn't the type you would typically expect someone like him to date. Ashley was thrilled. She had never had a boyfriend and really felt like he was her Prince Charming. I thought he was weird and creepy from the beginning. Matt was on the quiet side and always seemed to be sporting an uncomfortable, leering smile. It was difficult to carry on any sort of a conversation with him because he would always make it weird with some random facts that were completely unrelated to what we were talking about. I had deleted my MySpace when the initial stalking began, but I created a dummy account to learn more about Matt. It didn't look like he really knew any of his friends in real life. There were only pictures of himself and the rest of the information was vague. My friends and I gently tried to discourage her from seeing Matt. He technically hadn't done anything wrong, but he was just so strange. She would immediately get defensive and would shut the conversation down. Matt started to spend more time at the apartment, and I found myself finding any excuse I could to avoid coming home. One day I came home from work and found Matt on my couch, alone, drinking a beer. Ashley had been called into work, and she told him he could just hang out. I was furious because I didn't want to spend any time with him, so I grabbed a beer and a snack and headed off to my room and shut the door. About 30 minutes or so, he knocked on my door and suggested we watch some TV and get to know each other because we both loved Ashley. I didn't want to, but decided that maybe I needed to give it a try. He put on a movie and I tried to just focus on the movie because I didn't want to talk. At one point, I glanced over to Matt and he was staring at me with a smile on his face. I snapped a what at him and he just continued smiling and said, I just can't believe it. Believe what? I asked. He said nothing and went back to watching the movie, still smiling. I had no idea what he was talking about, but the interaction had every hair standing up on my body. I excused myself and locked the door to my room. Another month or so went on, and I had managed to avoid being home for much of anything beyond sleep and showering. Matt practically lived there and had even brought a bunch of his things into Ashley's room. I really didn't want to move again, but was beginning to look for other options. On their six-month anniversary, I saw a huge bouquet of flowers on the table, and an already opened card propped up next to it. I rolled my eyes and was about to leave when I decided to see what the weirdo wrote to her. When I opened the card, my heart started beating through my chest. Without even reading the words he wrote, I was shaking. The handwriting was exactly the same as the one my stalker had sent. I had kept them as evidence and dug them out of my desk for comparison. The handwriting was unique and identical. Matt was the stalker. I called the police first. As they were on their way, I called Ashley and asked her to come over. She was at work but said she would be there when she could. I was terrified to tell her because I knew she would be shattered. The police took a statement from me and actually went to Ashley's work to get more information from her, and they ended up breaking the news. Apparently, Ashley called Matt and left a furious message, even though the cops told her not to say anything, and he completely disappeared after that. There was no Matt or anyone matching his resemblance at the place he said he worked. 
Ashley had never been to his apartment because he said he had been staying with friends while trying to save money for a trip to Europe. His family lived out of state and she had never met a friend of his because he said they had a falling out because he was choosing to spend so much time with Ashley. It was all lies and in the end she was dating a stranger. We don't even know if Matt was his real name. The cherry on the top of this whole thing was when we went through Matt's things. He had left everything when he disappeared and Ashley and I decided to go through everything. There was a duffel bag that was full of gym clothes. But in one of the compartments, there were about 10 pictures of me. All were taken from far away, with the exception of one of me sleeping. The sheets were current, so I know it had to have been at the current apartment, before I started locking my bedroom door. A few pictures dated back to before the incident at my parents' house, which made us think that was him as well. Two pairs of my missing underwear were there, and I shudder to think of what he did with the rest. A Starbucks lid with my red lipstick marks. A necklace I hadn't even noticed missing. A few other random sick souvenirs. The police never tracked him down. I decided to accept an opportunity overseas that I had been considering and got the hell out of there. Unfortunately, Ashley and I quickly drifted apart. She had a really hard time accepting that her first love was a complete psycho. I think I had some underlying anger maybe misplaced, for believing all of his lies and letting him into our lives. I don't know what his end game was. Would he have tried to hurt me, or was he simply content with being in my world? I'll never know. Being stalked changes you. Even when I lived across the world, I looked over my shoulder everywhere I went. I still have no social media accounts attached to my real name. I am married with children and know that he moved on to torment some other poor woman. But every time I visit my hometown, I am tense and keep a low profile. Part of me will always worry that Matt will resurface again. Thanks to everyone for continuing to send in your stories via email at mystory@disturbedpodcast.com, over the hotline at 701-354-3667, or the online submission form at disturbedpodcast.com slash submit. Remember, no story is too big or too small, so keep them coming. Disturbed is an independent production funded through advertising and listener support. Thanks to those who share the show with friends and leave positive reviews. These things help new listeners find us. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to hear these episodes without the ads, you can get early access to our premium ad-free feed, as well as monthly bonus episodes. Visit disturbedpodcast.com support to learn more. And a shout out to all of our newest supporters, Roxy and Jacob French, Jessica Punch, Valerie Anderson, Sarah Zulewski, Sam Robin, Monica Romano, Olympiat86, and Chrislyn Perkins. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Music by Carl Casey at Whitebat Audio and Co.ag. Thanks for listening. 
we'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.